Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host for the Beyond Speaking podcast. And today we have on Jonna Mendez. Uh, right now we're in the first half of 2020. Uh, we're in a time of a lot of uncertainty. The stakes are high. There's a lot of conflicting information coming at people. Danger seems to lurk around every corner. Uh, people are on high alert. So I thought there was no better person to have on right now than Jonna Mendez. She's a former CIA chief of disguise and author of several books, including Moscow Rules. So Jonna, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So you worked for the CIA for 27 years. Um, and for those watching who don't know, uh, your husband was Tony Mendez, Antonio Mendez, who's played by Ben Affleck in the amazing movie Argo, one of my favorites. Um, you served your country all over the world, including Moscow during the Cold War. And from that came out uh, your book, uh, The Moscow Rules. And those rules right now, I think, are a really good playbook uh, and have some really good guidelines on how to react and how to lead and how to operate in a time when there is a whole lot of uncertainty going on like we're in right now. So if you could maybe lay out a kind of the general framework or maybe the idea behind the Moscow rules and where those came from. Well, first of all, we didn't write the Moscow rules. We didn't invent them. Uh, what Tony and I did is write them down. They've been floating around forever. Mm -hmm. People that, that would serve tours of duty uh, with the CIA in Moscow, they would very quickly learn these rules. These are the, these are the strategies and the tactics of doing your work in the most difficult place in the world for a CIA officer to operate. So they're not narrow and specific. They're really quite broad, but they're giving you, uh, they're like signposts along the road. They, they give you some guidance. They tell you when to stop. They tell you when to turn. They tell you how to conduct yourself. Uh, the problem in Moscow, the reason we have Moscow rules, I mean, we don't have Paris rules. <laughs> we don't have Rome rules. Moscow was just uniquely difficult for us to work in. Um, it wasn't for everyone. The, the, CIA, the CIA was up against the KGB. It was like a mano a mano. Uh, they were behind us, in front of us. They were in the walls. They were sitting next to us at our embassy. If you were walking down the street, they were stalking behind you. You could not work. And that was their whole point. They didn't want you to work. Mm -hmm. We were there to do a job, and they were there to keep us from doing the job. Uh, we still had to figure out ways to get around them or bypass them, or and that's what the Moscow rules were, uh, telling you broadly how to manage yourself on the streets of Moscow. And where did you kind of come into play with all of this? Tony always had a running list. Uh, he, he just, as he thought of them, he would, he would write them down. Uh, and we kept that list in the office because we were the Office of Technical Service at CIA. Mm -hmm. That's the technical, the technical arm of the agency. It, it, uh, it's not the only technical arm. There, there's a satellite section of the agency that's enormous. Mm -hmm. But for feet on the ground, espionage officers, we were the Q. We, we almost, you'd think we were modeled after Q. <laughs> we did we did all the audio bugs. We did bugs in things you'd never dream would be bugged. Mm -hmm. Think of a boulder on a beach with a bug in it. Uh, wow. Think of a tree, a tree branch with a bug in it. And of course we could put them in, in, in any any we had third story guys that could get in anywhere and put them in. 
Um, we did disguises. We did uh, false documents. Mm-hmm. Did all kinds of forensics. We did uh, uh, low light level video. We actually invented it. Really? We could, the, the photo section uh, uh, of CIA, which is where I began, we had tiny, tiny cameras, film cameras, and fountain pens and lipsticks and big lighters. And when I left, I think we were going to put one in a Pez, one of those Pez. <laughs> <laughs> they could be in anything. We were the gadget people. But uh, one of the differences between the, the, the Ian Fleming version and, and our own, um, we always went with James. We'd give him the equipment. We'd find out what he needed, give him the equipment. And we would accompany him because we knew that he was going to wreck it somehow. He's going <laughs> to lose it. He's going to break it. If something would go wrong. Uh, that was one of our rules that Murphy, you know, Murphy is always there. You have to always be ready to to uh, plaster over the thing that just that just broke. Uh, and so the job wasn't a job working um, in a lab somewhere. The job was going all over the world. That's what we did. It was a traveling, traveling job. It was amazing. It was fun. What was your favorite part of it? I started out uh, in photography. I went into the CIA as a secretary. Mm-hmm. And the only way I got out of that was uh, my interest in photography and my ability with cameras. So I did clandestine photography for some years, for maybe 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, traveled the world, taught people how to use various cameras to collect intelligence for us and get, and get it to us. Um, and then I, I, did a, I did a reverse 180 and I went into disguise. I did that because I had gone to a part of the world that I just fell in love with, and I wanted an assignment there. But there was no photo operations officer job there for me. But there was a disguise officer coming up in two years. So I said, make me a disguise officer. And they did. <laughs> I got my wish. What makes someone a good officer? Wow. Well, a lot of people ask that. A lot of young people today want to know, what are they looking for? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what, how can I make myself valuable? What do they want from me? Uh, we want all the things that any, any office of any big corporation wants when they're hiring. You want young, smart, technically capable. You want, uh, then, then we start going off in another direction. We'd love it if you had languages. We'd love it if you had traveled the world and kind of knew your way around. We'd love it if you'd already had a job in industry. Had a, had a real taste of a career before you came to us. We used to love it if you had been in the military. That's not so much anymore, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond all of that, there's a, there's a working in our part of it, working in OTS, we wanted a degreed um, chemists, physicists, engineers, all kinds of technical people who were on the cutting edge of whatever their specialty was. Mm-hmm. But mostly when people ask that question, they want to know about the DO, about the directorate of operations, about those case officers. Mm-hmm. They want to know, how do you get to be one of those? That's the job everybody wants. And that's a hard job. That, those, are, those are big shoes and it's hard to fill. We were always looking for these kind of type A personalities, larger than life personalities. The kind of person you'd meet uh, at a bar or at a friend's house and you instantly want to be their buddy. I mean, there are people that are charismatic like that. Mm-hmm. We wanted that charisma. And you know, that's one of the things you can't teach. You have to find it. 
Uh, they bring it to you. You can't go out. And, we can teach languages. We can teach uh, area familiarity. We can teach everything. We can't teach that that personality type. Mm -hmm. uh, we need people who are discreet. We need people who are problem solvers. So the list it just goes on and on and on. But the thing is that once we find that person, imagine that person mm -hmm. is probably the president of his high school class, or she was. Then we say, okay, we'll hire you, but we're going to stuff you in this box where you can never tell anybody what you do. And if you almost saved the world last Tuesday, no one could know. There's no bragging. There's no pats on the back. And a lot of people, when they retire, keep their cover. And so no one ever knows. Really? And a whole, a whole group of them just take a hard right and say, well, thank you. You know, it was great talking to you. That's a really, <laughs> that's a, that's a big ask. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I found really interesting in one of your articles you talked about, and so a lot of the people listening, watching right now are event planners. And so, and you mentioned that a lot of these things will happen at trade shows. Is that every trade show? Is it only ones that are, you know, aerospace and military or, or where do these things happen? We were, um, the way intelligence collection works, it's not like willy nilly. It comes out from Washington. It goes overseas to CIA stations and bases where we are. Uh, they say we need information about whatever it is. Say it's a technology, a new emerging technology. We need information about that. Our officers have to figure out where do you find that? Who has that information? Is it, is it in a company? Is it a person? Who has the knowledge? And then we have to access the knowledge. A lot of times that will end up uh, a group of like people meeting at a trade show, for instance. And so you end up at the trade show looking for looking for someone who has access to the information that you that you want. And then you have to figure out how to how to get them to part with it <laughs> willingly mm -hmm. uh, over over uh, over a long term. This is not an easy job. As a matter of fact, I was just always in awe of our case officers that could talk people into this. I used to think, what would what would it take for someone? to come up to me anywhere and say, you know, you know, you know, so-and-so, right? And you used to work on that project, right? Well, I'm really, I'm so interested in that project. And I wonder if you could help me. Could you get some, you know, and I'd say, get, get the hell out of here. <laughs> I mean, what would it take to get you to betray your country? Mm -hmm. That's what those, those larger than life guys, that's what the job is to talk, to, 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 to get people to do that. And they have enormous success doing it. It's always amazing. One of the things I really like about what you do, and I think really applies well to, um, to uh, you know, the corporate world right now, or at any time really, is just the ability to innovate, to experiment, to, uh, you know, think outside the box. And uh, uh, what are some of the ways or what, how is that process set up that you are able to, to innovate in such difficult circumstances? That's the job. Very often, that is the job. Um, in, in this office that I was in, the Office of Technical Service, our case officer colleagues would come and they'd say, I've got, I've got this operation. What I need, what I need is a black box like this at that frequency. And it would, you know, 
and and it would be very often something that didn't even exist in technology what they wanted mm-hmm. but if they could convince us that 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 would solve their problem we would set about inventing it we did that over and over we did that over and over we were for so many years ahead of the commercial technology we were things like bubble memories things like like these ultra small tiny hugely powerful batteries we needed them to put into our audio bugs because once you get in to putin's conference room <laughs> and you've got this wood block with rows of little batteries and you put it up under his conference table you will never get back in to change batteries that's only going to last as long as the batteries mm-hmm. so we were always trying to buy more buy more time mm-hmm. as a matter of fact um, um I think I mentioned in the book, we had one man uh, named George who spent his career, well, he's the, the front end of his career, a big part of it, working on batteries. And, and uh, he was a genius. He, he, he looked a little crazy. He was a wonderful man. But I didn't know until some years ago, a few years ago, that he was part of the team that saved the Hubble. Really? <laughs> he was our battery guy. Uh-huh. And the Hubble was evidently having a power problem out there in space. And George was, you know, one of the people on the team. At CIA, they have named a school after George Methley, the George Methley Directorate of Science and Technology, because of his innovations, his abilities. It was amazing. So innovation was our was our middle name. And desperation was the thing that drove us forward. One of the things a lot of people talk about is is borrowing from other industries in order to be more creative, to be more successful. And that's something that you and your group did really well with Magic and Hollywood. Obviously, a lot of people know Argo, but how did that uh, come about? And was that a regular thing or is that just once in a while or, or how did that come about? Well, <clears throat> with the Magic part, uh, it was Tony Mendez um, with a lot of things. Back in the day, it was Tony Mendez. Tony went into CIA as an artist. That's a very funny uh, uh, <laughs> career track to take you into the field of espionage. And he couldn't figure out why they were looking for an artist. Well, they weren't actually looking for an artist. They were looking for a forger, a counterfeiter. And he was very good at it. Um, but there he ended up plopped down in the middle of a group of right brain thinkers and Tony's thinking with the other side of his brain. He was creative. He was innovative. That magic thing was always on his mind, in the back of his mind, but he, he didn't apply it to work until we got to Moscow. Mm-hmm. And he thought to himself, you know, this deception and illusion business is so interesting on the stage. It had always fascinated him. He said, but why couldn't we use those tools here in Moscow? Well, we could. I mean, if they can walk an elephant out onto a stage, <laughs> open a big empty box. Yes, it's empty. Put the elephant in the box, close the door, talk for 30 seconds, open the door. The elephant's gone. I mean, you know the elephant's not gone. So you're sitting there squirming in the audience thinking, where is the elephant? <laughs> no trap door is big enough to lower. I mean, where is it? Um, he loved that stuff. And, and in, in the end, we started using those ideas of deception and illusion in Moscow. 
and the KGB never knew what hit them. They never knew we did it. I mean, that was the beauty. They couldn't get mad at you. They couldn't bumper lock you because they didn't know that the person in the car in front of them wasn't you anymore. You had stepped out and, and maybe this was a pop-up dummy wearing your face. That, that's one solution. Maybe it was another person wearing a mask that looked just like you. That's an, I mean, there was a thousand ways to do it. And if you did it right, they never do. So we always said it's like robbing the bank every night and they don't even know the money's gone. Hmm. One of the things that you talk about, one of the Moscow rules is never go against your gut. How can that apply? I mean, how did that apply to you? And then how could that apply for businesses today? Well, you know, it, <clears throat> it works different ways. The rule when we're using it, never go against your gut, was, was built around the idea that you need to meet face-to-face with your foreign agent every once in a while. You just must. You got to look them in the eye and tell them, you know, it's so important what they're doing. It, the, the information is really, I mean, you just have to pump them up. You can't just do it all remotely. On the other hand, you can't lead the KGB to them. K- KGB didn't want us. They wanted those people working for us. Mm-hmm. They wanted to arrest them and they would execute them. And they executed a number of them over the years. Mm-hmm. I think the average life was like 18 months working for us. Wow. So the idea of don't go against your gut means that if you're going to that meeting, that face-to-face meeting, and you just sense that something's a little bit off and you can't even, you don't have to even know what it is. You can just say, this is, something's wrong here. I'm not going to go. You would say, you would abort, abort the meeting. That was almost policy. Abort the meeting. If your gut says, this is a no-go, then don't go. And there, you know, there's no explanations. That's a little hard to, to carry that into a business environment where you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to bring this package together. You, But what we were always talking about with the gut is, is kind of considering it as one half of the pattern and, and analysis as the other. They are in competition. They're almost in war with each other. Your gut feeling and the analytic approach to whatever it is you're doing. But at the end of the day, your gut, I think, wins because your gut is like it's like body armor. <laughs> it's all your visceral parts of you saying, no, we shouldn't do this. You can apply it to, to almost any situation that you might be in. But you usually don't go down the wrong road if you're listening to your intuition and to your gut. One of those things too, like that's kind of seems like the medium in between, uh, you know, you're talking about innovation, but also one of the other rules is, is stay consistent over time. How does that factor in? For us, uh, consistent over time meant live your cover, never break your cover. Don't do anything. If you're, if you're supposed to be a, a businessman um, in that city working for some organization, never break your cover. Be consistent. If you're consistent, the KGB would get bored with you. They would decide that you weren't of interest to them. They would start backing off. They'd start giving you some room. They'd relax. That's what it meant to us. In business, the idea of being consistent, being dependable, being reliable, being someone that people can count on again and again, 
no matter how the circumstances change. That's how I interpret that rule in a, in a business environment, is, is to be the one that everybody comes to. They know they can count on you. It's your I, reputation. Absolutely. And, and part of that goes into, too, I think, you know, your people know who you are as a leader. You know, you're consistent with that over time. And I think that trust builds just like, you know, you're talking about on the streets, too. But also, I know from reading your book and some other things you talk about uh, being that consistent person for the, the people that you're working with, you know, the, the, the assets that you're developing on the other side, knowing, you know, them being consistent with you, too. So I think that that definitely all plays into it. And, um, you know, one of the other, the, not that we'll go through every single one, but I also really like, you know, know your opposition and know their terrain intimately, which I, I definitely think fits really well, um, you know, with businesses today of knowing what's out there and what they need to do. You know, there's strategy and there's tactics. And you need both if you're going to go up against any kind of a, an opponent, whether you're actually fighting a war or whether you're in a commercial environment and and you're trying to you're trying to win the prize, you're trying to come out on top of the the development cycle. Um, that goes back to Sun Tzu, actually, but it's it's really really true. If you don't know your enemy, you can't you can't um, get your arms around it. Where do you where do you begin? We see this with this coronavirus with that that we're all just we keep learning more about it. We still don't know all about it. But all the bits and pieces of it that, that, you know, how it manifests, how it's circulating, how it's moving. Um, the idea of looking for a vaccine, what they're trying to do is, is um, come up with some strategy and some tactics where they can nail that virus down. And then they can engage in a fight with it. But until they know it intimately, you can't really have the war that we need to have. Mm-hmm. You got to know your know your enemy, inside out. Certainly, and uh, one of the things that's great about you too, as well, that I, I like is you know I posted, hey, uh, you know what questions do you have for Jana? And so I know a lot of your your talk is you know the specific business points, how these things relate in, but a lot of people just like the kind of the cool uh, you know spy stuff. Uh, one person I said said just let her know that the spy museum is awesome. <laughs> so like I don't even have a question. I just love the spy museum, which you helped. Uh, which you helped found, um, you know, uh, what, um, I guess one of the things that, uh, was, the, or what was the most rewarding part of your career is one of the questions that we got in. Hmm. Well, you don't stay 27 years unless, unless you're, you're, you're getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I liked about my job, especially the disguise part of it was that, the feeling that we were, through disguise, we were protecting a lot of people that were putting their life on the line for the United States government. I'm talking about the foreigners, about the, the, the agents that we were running, that were providing us with intelligence, the ones that the KGB would like to catch and kill. Hmm. And, and through the use of disguise, we could keep those agents separated from their CIA handlers, keep them safe, keep their families safe. And if... If it started going wrong, because we didn't control every piece of it, um, through our offices, we could exfiltrate them. We could save them. And we did. Um, numerous times. And that's one of those things I think you told me one time. I don't, I, I, hopefully this was during like a public interview, but something like, uh, it was either like Tony did 150 and you did 1,500, some crazy number of, of exfiltrations of getting 
people out of bad places. I like that part amazed me. That was that was Tony's um, Tony's bailiwick. He he was he was um, you know when people would agree to work for us. There's a little bit of paperwork. Actually, we have them sign something. There's formality, but but we do. Um, and in that paperwork, we reassure them that we will rescue them and their families if we can, should we need to. Um, and so the whole time they would work for us, say 10 years, we would have documents, travel documents, ready for them, ready to, to hand them to them so they could get out of town. If they had little kids and the little kids are growing up, we'd come in and take their pictures every now and then and make them updated documents. So as a family, we could move them. That idea of, of taking care of the people that were working for us was powerful. I mean, I loved collecting the intelligence. I loved seeing our government um, um, do well. But the people part of it was always a big part of it for me. Whether I was training someone to how to use a camera that didn't look like a camera to get information for us, that would help protect him from being arrested when he's taking information. The whole package was, uh, to me, was serving our government, doing something that mattered, making a difference, and helping those people who were helping us. I just thought, what's better than that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so one of the other questions is, which is the uh, which movies or TV shows are the most realistic, like James Bond, Jason Bourne, uh, and some of the others there. What's the, what's the most realistic? Well, I love the Bond movies today. I love Daniel Craig, but they're not realistic, of course. I just, <laughs> I just like Daniel Craig. Realistic, <laughs> realistic was the Americans. Mm. Loved that show. I actually wrote the, the, the Washington Post, the, the review at the end, the kind of wrap-up review of the, of the series. Mm -hmm. A funny story, because someone said, who's, who's watching the Americans? This was at the Spy Museum. I said, I am. They said, would you, write, would you write this thing? I said, sure, I'll write that. But I had only seen like four episodes. Mm -hmm. And it ran for six years. But I didn't know that. So I, you know, wow. you talked about binge watching. I watched every episode. <laughs> and I loved it more and more and more. It was a really, I thought it was an excellent show. What about it makes it more realistic than some of the others? Um, that family situation just rang true. Mm -hmm. The neighbor next door, the FBI neighbor, that was, you know, that was a kind of a push, but it was just, it, it, that was our worst nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <It wasn't laughs> there, he came back again, knocking on the door with, with, I don't know, with some fried chicken. It was just, Oh God. Uh, <laughs> the kids, the kids uh, that's an issue that none of these other shows go into that kind of the family dynamics mm -hmm. of having people who are doing, that kind of work. Mm -hmm. Always tricky. Well, well, this is a great un, sort of unintentional follow-up. So this is from Leah Hayes in Nashville. What was, uh, what was your marriage like having both partners in such high stress and high stakes roles? And how did you prioritize each other? <sighs> well, you have to completely separate your private life from your business life. Because what you're doing at work it's kind of lying for a living. Mm -hmm. And then when you are not at work, it's absolutely unacceptable to lie. 
there's this th- we we always talked about our the moral comp- compass you had to keep it straight you had to remember no work this is okay home this is not i know tony and i once were boarding a flight for uh, france and we had our son with he was three months no he was three years old we had a pile of luggage because we were going to be gone a while and we got to dallas airport air france front of the line tony put down his documents tony the king of documents <laughs> had an expired passport <laughs> So that man at Air France was holding it like like it was a bug, and he said, "Oh, she she's inspired. You must." You. Tony comes comes over to me. There's a pile of luggage. There's Jesse, our little boy. Tony says, five minutes in the men's room. I can fix this." <laughs> that was his his you know, and I was I said. I think it's a felony. (laughs) (laughs) And so we went to a hotel and it turns out, I've always known this, but the U S passport office is one of these incredibly efficient machines. He went and, and he got his, uh, he got a new passport, a real one the next morning. (laughs) Oh, that's that's a lot of fun. Um, what uh, I guess? What are some of the things that sort of spilled over? Were there things that you so you had to be honest in one place, and and uh, you know, with the others, you know, it's always the cover. What are some of the things that maybe spilled over, or skills that spilled over from your your CIA life into your your uh, I guess regular life or real life? Well, there's Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> And that was never fair, was it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, what was your best Halloween costume, or, or how did you do Halloween differently than than uh, your sort of your average American would? My personal best was though I, will, I I was part of a pumpkin patch one year. We were all pumpkins, and we were connected, and it was just so funny. It was a really great <laughs> until somebody had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> And the patch had to stand in front of the door and the vine, you know, went, went in. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Over the years, we, we did, we did a lot of, we did a lot of fun things like that. Um, photography, you know, I, I, when I worked at CIA, the photography that I did was um, to collect intelligence. It was photographing pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. After I left, um, I was able to do some fine art photography we had an art studio for 25, 30 years after we left. Tony was a painter. I was the photography. And, and Tony had a, a grown son from his first marriage who was a sculptor, Toby hmm. Mendez. And so the three of us, we had gigantic art shows uh, twice a year. That was what we did. We were artists. Uh, each one of us using, well, not Toby, but Tony and I using all kinds of skills that we acquired at work. How do uh, spies raise their kids differently, maybe than than people outside of that? Like, do all of your kids have those skills, or do they le- grow up learning five languages, or or how is that maybe different than what the average person would have? I think the the thread that runs through the kids is um, artistic. Um, the, the youngest son right now is a musician. He does IT work in the daytime, and he does music at night. He he went to Berkeley uh, College of Music up in Boston. Toby Mendez, uh, Tony's older son is um, is a sculptor graduated from the art institute of chicago mm-hmm. um, art seems to be the theme his daughter amanda was always the bookkeeper to keep everybody you know organized because 
the, 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 the stereotype is that artists can't manage their books. <laughs> we write them, but we can't, you know, keep the numbers straight. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I know a lot of the stuff, you know, you live this whole life being very, very private, but then the, like, how did, you know, all this stuff start coming out? You know, you've written four books, I, I believe it, you're, you, between you and Tony, you've written four books. Uh, the newest, yours, you were just saying, it's gone incredibly well. The paperback comes out May 19. Um, and, um, you know, what was that like going from having, and I think, I, I know you mentioned before, having that code name that you've gone, or that alias you've gone with, with your whole life, to being very public about everything. What was that transition like? That was really hard. Um, it started with Tony being, uh, the, the CIA, there was this quiet moment, but right before 9-11, when Patrick Moynihan was saying, maybe we don't even need a CIA anymore. Hmm. You know, it was kind of a, this little groundswell. And so George Tennant said, let's, <clears throat> he said, we're going to have a contest. We're going to pick our, our 50 top people in our first 50 years, 50 top spies. We're going to do it publicly. And Tony was one. Well, Tony was just, just, He'd been retired nine years. He was a painter now. He just, it was amazing. So that was done. It was done publicly. And then Tennant called Tony in and he said, I want to put one story out there, sort of as a marker of this 50 year. I want to tell the Argo story. And Tony said, well, we can't. <laughs> he said, it's classified. <laughs> Tony, I think, was shocked. And Tennant said, well, not anymore. It's not classified. There are no real equities. There, there are no concerns. So I want you to go to the New York Times and talk to Tim Weiner. That was the charge. And Tony did not want to do that, but he did it. And then it just grew out of that. And you could watch him, like, if he did an interview or something. It took him some time to get comfortable with even talking about that one story. He was never going to tell that story. Um. And then he got more comfortable and he did a lot of interviews and then we wrote some books and, and, and then, I mean, it just the whole thing just went crazy. The movie Argo was absolutely amazing. Yes. They yeah. make a movie. George Clooney was going to make it. George Clooney bought it. He was going to star in it. He was going to direct it. He was going to write it. He was going to write the script. The odds of that turning into one of the best movies you ever saw. I mean, what are the odds? <laughs> This, this just kept piling on top of itself. What are the odds that you're going to pick Tony as one of the 50? What are the odds that that story is going to get out? They're going to make a movie out of it. Is it going to be a good movie? We were just, we just were stunned. But we, we watched, uh, we saw the movie, just the two of us. There's this gem of um, um, the American Film Institute has a tiny movie theater in Washington, D.C. It's, I don't think it's open to the public. It doesn't seat maybe 20 people. It's like being in a, a jewel box. And we sat there with somebody from Warner Brothers, the three of us, and watched the movie. And somewhere in the middle of it, Tony cried. That's where there's a whole big screen, and it was Ben Affleck's face. The whole screen was his face. And he was saying, my name is Tony Mendez. And I could Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was absolutely moving it was uh, and, and it was so good thank you for joining us for the beyond speaking podcast to learn more about today's guest go to beyondspeak.com make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen 